This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah, in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. This time we're at a different angle. We're the ones overlooking the Temple Mount. Actually, if you move the board, we'll get some. Uh, you'll get better light on us, so we can. We normally block the black backlight, but today we'll be able to look right out onto the Temple Mount from our. Oh yeah, that's nice. Thank you. Staring at the Western Wall here, overlooking the Western Wall. Um, today, what we're doing is we are um, we're going to ask questions of God. What are our questions of God? I have a few questions of God, um, but I'll I'll start with yours. Here's our here's our first question of God. Um, so, so the first question is, what should I be doing? Okay. That's a good question. Uh, what should I be doing? Yeah, what should I be doing? So, uh, so there's general and specific answers to this. Now, by the way, I'm not saying I know what God would answer, but I'm just going off intuition, obviously. You know, I don't get to go up. Uh, imagine I just, like, press a button. I'm like, and come back with the answer. I, don't, I can't do that. But I can go with my intuition and also go with... Uh, with the various teachings I've gotten from my teachers and from my and from my learning in, in the of the prophecies of the Torah, so so this is what should I be doing? So what I should be doing is a twofold answer. There's a, a macro and a micro, a macro and a micro. There's a general and a specific. So the general is service. We're here to serve. You want to be serving. Okay, that's that's amazing. I'm always teaching people about serving. In fact. I don't know where I was last night. One in the morning, someone walked into my house, and and uh, I don't know. Someone walked me home last night. It was like a dream, and and there I was. And I get to my house, and I'm obviously tired, and I just want to go to bed. But then, and he hadn't left my house. So it was a dear friend of mine from uh, <laughs> from a nearby city. Anyway, and then he finds me in the back of the house stuffing towels into the washing machine to wash some towels. And he says, yeah, you really do. You, really, you don't just talk about service. Like, you actually do service. And that, again, that's like no one would have known in the world until I, of course, announced it here. But no one would have known had I not announced it here except for this guy catching me. You know, just like instead of just going right into bed, I went to the laundry room thinking my family's probably been asleep a few hours, which means there's a chance to hit the washing machine in a way that would be helpful. And so I took stuff out of the dryer, put the washer in the dryer, stuffed the towel, washed with towels. Anyway, but that's the generals. We're here to serve, and you want to be serving. You want to always look at your life as serving. You want to go to bed every night saying, what difference did I make? How much did I serve the world? And that's the macro, is just to be a servant. Serve as much as you can. Your life will be so much more meaningful if you spend your life serving. Um, serving God, serving people, serving the environment. Anything you can do service-oriented. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like Just make sure you're busy doing it as much as possible. So that, that's number one. Uh, just one caveat is that if you're young, like these two ladies or this guy or this guy or this girl, meaning if you're tw- 18, 19, how old are you? 19. So when you're that young, then you should be a little more selfish so you have more to give later. So you want to build yourselves up with, uh, like, stuff yourselves with wisdom and education and 
learn what, how, how you can give the, first of all, what should you be doing, and that goes to the micro now, the specific, is figure out what it is you're specifically built to give. Like, what are you really built to give? And if you can figure out what you're built to give, well, these are good years to be a little selfish and train. Train, get yourselves good at something so that you can offer it later. By the way, you don't have to be young for that. It's just that you can't be as selfish once you're in your 20s, you know, mid-20s. You mid-20s yet? You got it? Late 20s. So you, now you don't have the luxury of just sitting and studying something all day long. So we ha- if, we wanted to tr- if we wanted to change how we give, and we would need to train for that, we'd have to do it on the side. Because we, we're, we're already expected to be in some kind of service capacity at our age. But you guys can, can just go train. But train. Like figure out if you haven't gotten, if you haven't done like high level, um, if you haven't done high level, um, uh, what do you call that? I only know in Hebrew, Ivchun uh, in Hebrew. Um, what do you call it when you learn, when you get tested to find out what you're supposed to do? The, for the term. Aptitude, yeah. If you weren't, if you weren't tested for aptitude testing, you know, to figure out what you're meant to do on earth, so then do it, because we all have settings. We have personalities. We have special cohos, strengths inside. And you want to get that so that you can get to your specific gift. So, like, I serve generally, like, I'll do laundry or I'll make coffee for somebody if they want or, or I'll clean up the garbage or I'll pick up bottles on the side of the road or I'll, you know, I, I'm pretty service-oriented on the general. But specifically, I spend most of my time either talking about being Jewish and helping people get their heads around Judaism so that it, it's something that they feel like they want to do and also how to be Jewish and that's helping people very specifically um, with their, you know, their personal lives, like getting them in gear so that they're well enough to be of service, mm-hmm. if not really well. Because when you're really well, you generally serve people. And then the next question is, why am I Jewish? With all the good things we do, for example, giving to organizations, and all the begging and praying that we do and all the violence? Why hasn't Mashiach come yet? Oh, that's another question. Okay. How's it going? You can come sit over there, I think. We're doing a... We're all live today. Anyway, there's three questions. Um, so this question is, why am I Jewish? And... Um, God created the world in two parts. There's part A and part B. And the truth is there's really a C and a D. But part A and B are the main parts. Part A is human beings would figure out God. No Judaism. Judaism only came around 2448. The Mount Sinai Judaism, like the actual prophecy that hit our nation, was in year 2448. It's easy to remember because 2448. They go together nicely. So 2448, that was Mount Sinai. And that is when we, that's when God moved to plan B. Why did he move to plan B? Because plan A was that human beings would figure out the whole God thing and like how to relate to God and have a relationship with God. Wait, so what was A? I thought that was B. Relationship to God, humanity. 
And that failed miserably. Maybe God bit off more than he could chew. I mean, if you'd like to give a message to a, a thousand people or to give a message to one, I think the thousand people might be a bigger challenge than to one. And so God went for all of humanity in the first place. That was a, you know, and that was a serious failure. You know, just look at the Torah. It talks about all the really bad, you know, how, how badly it went. And, um, and then he moved to plan B. Okay, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to just give it to one nation. And notice that this nation he prepared. First of all, he, s- prepared, us, he prepared us genealogically. Like our gene pool is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've got these Syrian women, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah and Rachel, and uh, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. These are all Syrian women. Like, like Jewish people have to be from this direct line of this, you know, Iraq Abraham was from. We have to come from there. And we have to come from Syrian women. And you can't have any Canaanite blood at all in our people. Okay, no Canaanite blood whatsoever. The gene pool has to be specifically from there. And so that was the first thing. And it wasn't even, it even had to, you know, God did ethnic cleansing with us, so to speak. They think about the cleansing. That Abraham and Sarah, the Syrian woman, they couldn't, oh, she was from, sorry, she was from Urkazdin. Rebecca and, and the rest were from Syria. But, Sarah can't have a child until there's a siphoning off from Abraham into Yishmael. Yishmael is, is got to come from a Canaanite handmaid. And from there, the Canaanites were known for not having, um, for not having uh, very good borders, let's say, when it comes to sexuality. Like they have bad borders or no borders and and that, when you don't have borders and you just are in full flow, that's called chesed. Chesed, um, I'm not talking about the chesed that they call kindness. I'm talking about Kabbalistic chesed. means full flow all the time. Where you're just like, you know, like a tsunami is full flow. And it's very destructive. You know, the seashore was not doing its job there. And so too with the Canaanites. The seashore didn't do its job. And it was a full flow thing. In fact, Later you see in the Torah, when the Jews are coming up to the land of Israel, the Torah says that don't think it's because you're so special that you're coming into the land here. It's for two reasons. One, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't want to go bad on my promise. And two, is that the Canaanites are so far gone on their lack of of limitation, their lack of ability to to, um, hold themselves back physically that they've, they've burned out their right to be in the land. It's over for them. But if I just send them away, if I just exile them, the whole place will be run by animals. Because in those days, populations and animals had to have a ratio. You know, we're right off Africa here. This place was full-on, like, you know, safari land. And, and the Canaanites were keeping them at bay. So, in fact, even when the Jews conquered the land, they were told to only do it over seven years. So that they didn't just send the Canadians and Canaanites packing and then the Jews all get eaten by wolves and, and leopards and every other kind of animal that was in this area. Actually, uh, mountain biking about 25 years ago saw the, one of the last leopards and uh, full-size cats in, 
Israel. It could be, they say there's still a few around, but that, that, I got to see one of them, which isn't 100% true. I was doing a very intense descent, so I wasn't looking around for leopards at the time. I was just trying to survive. But I was going down a ravine in the, sun, in the Negev, in the south of the country, uh, down to a wash, which was, like, super hairy. So the guys fall. I scared the leopard on the other side of the wash, on the cliffs over there. And, uh, and it just dashed away. But my companions behind me, riding behind me, were just parked their bikes and were just like, and got to see a full, like, National Geographic, full-size black leopard just, like, take off up the other mountain. So I didn't get to see it. I got to scare it. <laughs> anyway, the... The breaks are called Gevura in Judaism, and the, and the gas is called Chesed. That's just go for it. And Yishmael represents 20 generations from Adam till Abraham. Those 20 generations of, of, of sexual impropriety, of lack of Gevura, lack of limitation in sexuality, all had to get siphoned off into Yishmael, so, which is chesed to the right, in order to create on the left this very extremely disciplined, systematized personality called Yitzchak. And you hear it in their names, because Avram's also chesed. He's flow. Avraham's flow. Yitzchak is, is gavura. But it required for us to siphon off Yishmael's chesed. Twenty generations of chesed went to Yishmael. And there's still, you still, when you check out the nomadic Arab people who today are hardly nomadic anymore, the last of the Arabs today are, are the Bedouins. Those are the true, because Arab means nomad. The nomads of this area was called the Arab. But later when Islam came, they started parking and, and kind of developing cities around things. And, uh, but they were generally nomadic at the time. But they're, they're still to this day, you know. I mean, look how they fight wars. It's just like lobbing random rockets everywhere. Like, who does that anymore? You know, it's like we're a little more technological these days and a little more precise with our warfare in the West. But, uh, you know, Islam's still, like, kind of wild, you know. They're just going to crash a plane into a... Crash our plane, you know, the U.S. plane, into U.S. buildings. That's their way of warfare, you know. It's, like, so random and... And just like, you know, like, it's very chesed style. Like, no precision at all. It's not Yitzchak warfare. It's not. So now Yitzchak, with his Syrian wife, Rivka, Rebecca, they have twins. And the firstborn must be Asaph. Because you think about it, who in the end is really the firstborn? It's Yaakov. Yaakov is the one who gets everything as if he's the firstborn. But it can't be that way for the spiritual siphoning, the, the, the ethnic cleanse, so to speak. It had to go first to Aesop, so that, so that 20 generations of Gevura, which is strict discipline like Yitzchak, 20 generations of Gevura will go into Aesop. And Aesop, who's known, he's the father of the West. If you follow his progeny, it's all Western countries. You know, Ashkenaz and Germany and all these Plays all come about Rome, Ed, the Edomites. That's all Rome and ancient Europe. Systematization. They are 
and look how they fight their wars. You know, everything is like, you know, it's like it's someone with a screen and a joystick, you know, just like moving the bomb around till, you know, the rocket around till it hits the X, you know. In the, but it's not just that, it's in everything they do, you know, like the, the Industrial Revolution did not come from Baghdad, I'll tell you that. You know, it came from Europe and, and it came, you know, it's that system, the Industrial Revolution. And that's all ace of land. And, and that it gets siphoned off in the ace. And now once you have Yishmael, who represents the 20 generations of chesed, meaning unbridled flow, and then Esav, Jacob's older brother, who, tw- who's twin brother, but he came out first, is 20 generation. You notice Jake, a, um, Jacob's holding his heel, right? Didn't he, like, pull him back in? Did he? Is that what happened? He, anyway, but Jacob's, like, holding his heel because he's really the firstborn. He's, like, pulling him back. But, but Esav had to come out first because that's going to be the 20 generations of strict discipline and... and uh, and uh, systematization, systematization that's, that's engendered to Westernism, often for, for at our demise. All of this creates the possibility for Jacob, and Jacob represents this perfect balance. He's this perfect balance. Now, I said that two things had to happen. One was God's going to do this through a unique people, one group of people. It started with this gene splicing. And then it moved directly, immediately, to slavery. In fact, this week's Parsha Vayeshev is when Joseph gets sold down to Egypt by his brothers. And then, and then the whole thing begins. Like this week's Parsha is where it all <coughs> starts. Down to Egypt. Like, did, wasn't it just yesterday that Adam and Eve were in the garden a couple of weeks ago? But we're already going down to Egypt. And this week's Parsha begins the Egypt experience. And the, but 20, 210 years of transgenerational slavery. Now, why is that part of God's plan? By the way, we're still answering the question, why Judaism? Why, why is this part of God's plan? And the answer is because we need to learn how to serve. It's been a total failure of 20 generations of people who did not serve God. There were unique individuals that did, but on the whole, humanity were just creepy. They were creepy. They were creepy sexually. They were creepy. That's uh, the, the chesed pot side, the flow side. They were creepy violently on the, you know, the mechanized death of, uh, you know, many civilizations throughout those 20 generations. The Creepy, creepy generations, and not at all what God had intended, which was a, to have a relationship with humanity. Like God just wants to have a relationship with us, like a real lover relationship. He just wants to be in a loving relationship with humanity. That's why it says He's a jealous God. You know, one of the most beautiful lines in the Torah is that God's a jealous God. Of course, yeah, I guess you have to be Jewish to recognize that because Oprah Winfrey did, renounced her connection to, Judea, to Christianity because of the line that God's a jealous God. You know, she had been, at the time she was with her guru, um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, 
you know, and Eckhart Tolle's like very broad thinking, you know, so Oprah's in this big broad thinking mode, and then when she hears, when, and then she starts thinking about the line, God's a jealous God, she's thinking, well, that's a little petty for the creator of such a incredible expansive universe, like, jealous? Gee, I'm, I'm out. Meanwhile, she chose the wrong sentence to be out for it. That's one of the most beautiful lines in the whole Torah. Like, you make God loves you so much that when you space out on him, he starts getting jealous. You know, like, let's say you're on your cell phone, and you're, like, just thinking about everything but God. And you know what God's doing? He's, like, looking over your shoulder. Going, what could be more important? What could be more important than me? You know, or you're, or you're, in, love with, you're in love with some gal, or you're in love with some guy, and, and God just got a, what am I, chopped liver? You know, gets jealous. You know, like, like, for example, my wife and my career. You know, my career takes me all over the world, and I'm out a lot, and I'm busy a lot with it, helping people. And uh, she's totally behind me, 100%, but boy, does she not like sharing it. She doesn't like sharing me with my career at all. She doesn't like that. I mean, she understands, and she helps me, and she backs me, and feeds me, and nourishes me, and helps me pack, and make decisions, and... She's totally with me. She, she's, on, she's with me on this cause, but jealous in the most beautiful way. Like, she's so jealous of, of my time. And, you know, what could be more important than her time with me? And, and God feels the same way, and that's one of the most beautiful lines in the whole Torah. Shame Oprah missed it, you know, on that. You know, that was, that was the wrong line to drop God, you know. And... Um, I don't think she dropped God, but I think she was looking for an excuse out of Christianity because Eckhart Tolle's, you know, not exactly a friend of the Christian world, you know. <laughs> he can't stop quoting J.C., but I think it's really just to siphon off Christians to, you know, what better way to get Christians into your ministry than quote their, uh, their Savior, you know, and then, of course, quote him in, with your own, your own twist on what he was saying, you know, to get him towards his much more Buddhist-leaning uh, teachings. Anyway, um, so the reason why Judaism, the reason why of Ju- the why of Judaism is because, is because this is Plan B. Plan B is to have a relationship with God as a nation who serves. We serve 210 years of slavery. That's transgenerational. That means that when you're born into slavery, you think you're free because you're born into slavery. If you're born into slavery, you don't know any better. Like, that's what you know. That's all he know. And, and now you're just thinking you're free even though you're a slave. So now when you get the Torah at Sinai, maybe you'll serve him. And you see it's worked. Like you, for the most part, Jews were still here. You know, now he kept us here for the most part, but the fact that there's still Jews serving him means that, you know, that there's a certain level of service. And look at Jews. Look at the numbers of Jews in the world of service. You know, like if anyone's... If anyone sees themselves as the solution to the earth's problem, it's the Jewish people. And boy, have we solved a lot of them. You know, so, so we, we, anyway, we had to have that servitude. And then, of course, we had to have our you know, Mount Sinai experience, which was a full national revelation. Very important. You can't just rely on one prophet. Judaism just asks too much. You know, like if you got prophecy, at the, at, if you went down to the wall for Mincha, you have to have gotten prophecy. 
and we asked you, what did God say? And you tell us that God said that all of us have to give all of our, you know, 10% of our money to you for the rest of our lives. Right? What would, what would you guys say? How would you feel about his prophecy? Yeah, how many other people heard that? Yeah, give us some witnesses. No, it's only me. Would you give 10% if he gave you that one? Yeah, he said it. He's the only one who heard this. No, he's just like, no. So, so the, and that's just one commandment. God has asked us 613, which breaks into 55,000 asks. God's basically asking us 55,000 asks because every commandment's just a hyperlink that leads to a website that actually breaks into hundreds of laws. So it's a giant ask. And you can't, you know, religions are created by what they call prophets, you know, because someone said he heard something. But it better be damn simple, whatever he heard. And not too taxing on the people. You understand? That better be something real simple. Not a difficult thing. And and as difficult as it is, you're going to have to ask. Like, you want to make your religion more complex? Break out the machetes. You know, you're going to have to scare people into it. You're going to have to bring a little afterlife scares. You know, scare people off on the afterlife business. But Judaism is just one giant ask. No afterlife promises at all. I mean, we know there's an afterlife because we have souls, but no promise of what your afterlife is and what that's going to be about. We have no idea. And, uh, and no swords. There's no force. And here we are, thousands of years later, still like, you know, wishing our bathroom light was on on Shabbos when we forgot to put it on and spending a whole Shabbos using the bathroom in the pitch black <laughs> because we just, and no one's going to know. No one would ever know. This is why that, that, that to be trustworthy in testimony in Judaism, you have to be someone who keeps Shabbat. Why? Because someone who keeps Shabbat means they keep Shabbat when they're in private. Most of the laws are going to come up pri- when you're in private, unless you smoke cigarettes or something. But then, you know, you have to go outside to smoke. But most laws that you keep on Shabbat are going to be pr- between you and God. And so if someone really is that person who keeps that, well, then his testimony is worth something. You understand? That's the kind of person that, you know, because anyone can be good in front of people. Can you be good when you're alone? You know, that's, that's the test of, of uh, dignity, of integrity when you're by yourself. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was going to answer this question for so long. Um, anyway, that was plan B. I'll tell you C and D real quick. Uh, C, is, uh, C is exile because we blew it so badly. Plan B failed. The Jews come to Israel and just could do nothing right for the whole first temple and the whole second temple. Like, I mean, we did some things right, but I'm saying proverbially nothing right. I mean, we, we just... Whatever God's intention was for there to be a nation called the Jews just didn't go so well. You've got to be real careful because this is what the Christians like to say. They believe God. We did so badly by the Second Temple's destruction that God passed the baton to them. You know, which is, that doesn't make any sense either because if, if, God, if, God, puts, if God puts a whole nation into a covenant who have this gigantic ask of 55,000 laws, and, and obviously he has to do that in person, like just like with you. That one law that we have to give 10%, he should have told us, not you. If you, want to have, if you have an ask, you've got to ask everyone. You can't, 
You got to request that of the people, not of a some guy in a cave. Okay, that's not something you ask a guy praying at the hotel if it affects others. And it was a pub. It was us he asked about keeping the covenant of the Torah. But here's the thing: if you want to say that the baton was passed, so if he's a just God, he would have to tell us after the second temple that it's over, the covenant's over. Now he has to tell us it's over. What kind of just God would would leave the Jews for the next 2,000 years? Which of course, obviously this is all a joke because now we're overlooking the Temple Mount itself as he's brought our people home, you know, which is wild. But, but besides, you know, let's rewind it 70 years because now it's just too clear what's going on here with the Jews. But even if you rewind it 500 years, you've got Jews living and dying, usually dying, for their Judaism. I mean, you're usually getting killed for their Judaism by Christians, of all people. And we just, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You can't keep us down. You know, we're just, we just, we're, we're just in here for the long haul. Why? Because it's an eternal covenant. And it says it's an eternal covenant. So, like, the book they believe is divine says we're in it. The Jews are in, are in an eternal covenant. So, like, you've got to ignore that line. But it's not just that. What kind of just God would have the Jews doing these commandments only to get persecuted for them? They could have assimilated but only to get persecuted for, persecuted for them if it was no longer binding, if the covenant was over. Obviously, the covenant still is there. And anyway, but what God did after the second temple, when he finally saw like this whole pilot nation in Jerusalem sending light to the world is a failure. And so what did he do? He took that whole orb of light on the temple and he just went like... And like blew it to smithereens. And each little spark of light, every little shard of light is in you and 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 you. It's all inside of you. And we what are we what is he doing? He carpet bombs the planet with Jews. You know, like, oh, you can't do your job like as a nation, as just this shining light to the world, a beacon for the planet. You can't do that for the world okay go ahead and do it individually like I'll just send you out there and he literally carpet bombed the planet with us and boy did he I mean my goodness we've been everywhere like no matter where you go the most obscure places you know there was a Jew there were Jews living there at one time or another civilizing the people now what happens when we civilize the people first of all it has a double mechanism one mechanism is that it that country will do very well. They will prosper when the Jews are there. Wherever we went, that country would prosper. It's an interesting mechanism. What about us being there? It makes it prosper. We're just people keeping to ourselves, studying our books. You know, we just want to be left alone for the most part. But that country will prosper. Well, what happens when a country prospers? You know, everyone notices kings of the world are watching that the Jews all live, seem to be, I don't know, located around Spain right now. And Spain's doing really well right now. So what happened? All those surrounding countries want us. Give us your Jews. We want your Jews. And of course the Spanish are like, hell no. (laughs) We're not giving up our Jews. But what happens every time? Here's the second mechanism. The second mechanism is the Gentiles that are hosting us in their nations after enough years or, you know, a generation or two, or not even, they can't live with themselves because of the guilt. Because what we taught them, what we represent, is you can't do that. You can't do that. 
So meaning all the behavior of Gentiles throughout the world of these nations had, you know, they just had behavior that's intolerable, which is why God created plan B of Sinai. So now he has us going as couriers, individual couriers into each of these countries to teach them, you know, moral, uh, you know, uh, ethical monotheism. You can't do that. Ethics. Ethical monotheism. We carpet bomb the planet. But what happens is after a while they can't live with us. They can't deal with us. Like we're just, we just represent guilty feelings. I mean, imagine, for example, imagine I followed you around a whole Shabbos. Just all Shabbos. I just follow you around. Imagine I follow you around all Shabbos. I'm like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. I'm just like, you can't do that. One guy actually asked me to do that for him. He realized Torah was true, but his lifestyle just, he wouldn't, he knew he was never going to be able to live a Torah lifestyle. So he said, I want to at least, when I get upstairs to God, have one Shabbos under my belt. So I'm going to move in with you and your family, and I want you to keep an eye on me the whole Shabbat. That I don't do anything wrong, so at least I can come upstairs with one Shabbat under my belt. And he did it. And then he wound up, and then he flew off to like back to LA, real estate mogul, you know, like rolling with the big, you know, BMW and all the lifestyle he was living there. And uh, you know who he is today? This guy? He's a breast liver Hasidic rabbi who's one of the greatest teachers ever. Ever. More people have become Shomer Shabbos through him than I don't even know. <laughs> Which is really... F- I can't say that. After that story. No, ma'am. <laughs> I don't think that everyone needs to know that story. But... Uh, yeah, but I, I got to be part of it. You know, I got a little assist there and keeping an eye on him all Shabbat. You know, little did any of us realize where he was going. But, he, but it's really funny because when he comes, if you go to the mikvah with him, you notice this guy's like, <laughs> just, he, he's just from the gym, you know. He's just like, you know, the BMW gym days. You know, he, he just looked a little different than everybody in the mikvah because he was like, you know, this like super high society, like perfect shape millionaire. You know, which only really shows up in the mikvah when he takes off all his Hasidic garb. You know. So, hey, 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 what's up? Look at these people. Come on in. Yeah, we're just making it more relaxed today. Come on, you can hear a sound bite. You can, you're going to hear like two minutes even. But let's close the door so it's not because uh, we're recording uh, live, the live feed. So welcome. Where are you guys from? Sweden. Oh, Sweden, right there. Yeah. I've spent time there. Yeah. You're from uh, the south where the sun sets or from the north where it doesn't set? Uh, yeah, you know, south, Welcome to Israel. Anyway, so part, part C was the... Um, want some water? So part C is that the Jewish people would be carpet bombing the planet with ethical monotheism. And of course, I said there are two mechanisms. One is, wherever the Jews lived throughout history, you might like this because we're talking about Europe, wherever the Jews were, that country would do really well financially. But, and all the other nations, all the countries surrounding that country would want the Jews. Like, we want some Jews. But what would happen within a generation or two, the Gentiles living in that country, the, the people living there, could not live with themselves. 
because we represent you can't do that, which brings guilt, you know, because you suddenly like stuff you're, you're, you did, your parents did, your grandparents did, your great-great-grandparents, all the way back is morally depraved. It's like wrong, in, at least in the eyes of this nation of Israel that hang out in your country. So what happens? It's just a matter of time before either someone comes in power or someone influences the person in power and says, get these Jews out of here. They're not worth it. And also, generally, when a country is wealthy for a while, they tend to forget where it all came from. So, so they just, you know, they lose their gratitude. You know, they, that's gone. And, and boom, the Jews are booted. Well, you'd think, usually when someone throws something out, you know, if you find a piece of garbage on the side of the road, you know, you don't like say, hey, maybe this is going to be good in my living room. You know, you think like, like it probably is broken, you know. So that's what the nations should have thought when the Jews got expelled from country to country in Europe. But no, they've been, their mouths been watering for a generation or two just to get the, the financial, you know, abundance that comes with house, hosting those Jews. And so we would just go country to country to country to country. <laughs> sometimes they even, like, sometimes time, enough time went by that they forgot why they threw us out in the first place. And we came back. And, like, re-infected re, uh, re, uh, uh, them. Spain. Spain took us more than once. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and then we'd reinfect them. Anyway, this was the plan. And it worked, for the most part. And you see, there's Christianity, Islam also do their share of, of uh, you know, of, of breaking people of their idolatrous practices and whatever. Anyway, but now guess what? We're in Part D. Part D is um, Shalom. Part D is the end of history because the Torah promises. The Torah promises that there's a sure. There's there's a guy who. who there's a guy who picks people up off the wall. So those people were off the wall. They always come in for like a minute. It's so disruptive. But, but I don't even know what he's thinking exactly. But I'll speak to him privately at some point. Because I know the people paying him to sit at the wall were not expecting him to do that exactly. You know, he's supposed to, I think he's supposed to at least, because we, we have a little thing that scans whether men are circumcised to know if, if he should be inviting them up to the yeshiva. Have you seen this thing? It's by the front door. I mean, we have one that just is in the front door that just does It beeps if someone's not circumcised. <laughs> That's why you haven't heard it. So, anyway. <sighs> I couldn't have gone a whole hour without saying something totally random. <laughs> <coughs> it's it's our uh, my my mother's side of the family is called Bermans, and they could have you going for ten to fifteen twenty minutes on some like thing as if it is the most factual thing ever, and you're just like, <laughs> and they just keep going with perfect straight face, and it's been going on for generations on their side, and it's genetic, it's genetic because like my family shouldn't have been doing that that much because we're. We're strong glazer genes, not strong Berman genes. But it was just enough time with whoever influenced it. But now any of my brothers and my mother can go off on one of these stories. And my wife does not like it. And it takes me a while to remember that sometimes. Her family doesn't do that. 
Anyway, back to part D. Obviously, God doesn't want us to end there. He wants us to end here in Israel. The whole thing has to end. So what happens? Around 200 years ago, there were these great Kabbalists throughout the world. In, you know, various places, not connected to one another. I mean, there was no internet. You know, they, they're just Kabbalists, great sagely Torah scholars who know all the secrets. And guess what happens? In one year, spontaneously, they all realized the, exi- the exile's over and sent their students to Israel. Spontaneously. And so people started showing up in Israel that year and, and, then, and then the ensuing years. And they're like looking at this Yemenite guy going, uh, why'd you just move here? He's like, our teacher, you know, the leader of the Yemenites has sent us. And the other one's like, who are you from? And he's like, I'm from the Ukraine. The Baal Shem Tov has sent us. And where are you from? Oh, we're from Lithuania. The Vilna Gon has sent us. And where are you from? Oh, we're from Iraq. The Benishchai has sent us. And it was like, it was like, everyone was just like meeting up here going like, our teachers have said it's over. The house I live in is 200 years old, built by Yemenites from the people that were sent sent here to the land of Israel, built 200 years ago. My daughter changed the face of my phone to Mickey Mouse. You know, all this, I kept looking at my watch and seeing it was Mickey Mouse from the face I had. And now I get it. Oh my gosh. Mickey. It's four oh one. That's how Mickey that sounds like more like Minnie, no? <laughs> Mickey and Minnie have similar voices. So uh, anyway, part four is redemption. And redemption's a whole process. Started with the, the first it started with the Kabbalists realizing that we're all coming home. And so, so that was part one. Part two was um, uh, part two is the is the all the secularized Jews. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's got many parts. And you know, since this is all the time we're using it all on this question. By the way, save your questions because we'll, maybe we'll do this again tomorrow. So, do you guys like this format of all sitting around the rabbi like this? I never sit when I teach. If you may have noticed, but it's probably good for me. I sat today, so anyway, here's the parts. You ready for the parts? Industrial Revolution. Why? Because we're going to have to build the state of Israel quickly. We're not going to have a lot of time before the Goyim come after us. We got to like, you know, because if you look at Jewish history, it's like a wheel, and it's like God loves the Jews, the Jews love God, and then the wheel starts turning, and it's like. Um, the Jews get fat and forget about God. You know, goes down here. The Jews lose their protection. Goes down here, and it's like the Gentiles attack because they're always God's messenger to remind us there's a God. The Jews call out to God, save us, which is recognizing God. I Meaning, you either recognize God out of good, or you're going to recognize Him out of bad. Save us, and then it's like God saves us. You know, and then you know, and that's half our stories, and then. And then, then we make Kiddush, you know, and, uh, for the holiday, you know, Purim, Hanukkah, whatever. And then God saves us. We love God, and God loves us. And this just keeps going around. Now, God knew, God's outside of time. He knew that when we get the state of Israel, it's going to be by hook or more by crook, and the, the secular Zionists are going to be the ones doing it. 
And who are they? The industrialists who can build a country overnight. Because who was the other Jew? The other Jew was Fiddler on the Roof, Shtetl Jew, not building states overnight. Now, the, the, but think of God's challenge. He needs the industrialists to build the state, but he needs them to be Jewish industrialists. But the Jewish industrialists are the people from the Enlightenment who dropped Judaism. I mean, they like surgically reinstalled their foreskins. These people aren't interested in Zionism. How do you get them interested in Zionism? Which is another whole thing. You know, it comes along with this guy Herzl, and Herzl's like, Herzl like got the Jews into it, man. He like they got this giant fanatical wave. Like they were not keeping Shabbat, these people. They were not interested in Judaism at all. But one thing they were interested in was the one mitzvah to dwell in the land. Like they made a big deal out of that. They had their reasons, you know, we need a safe place for the Jews. You know, we need a solution for the Jewish people. You know, after everything we've been through, we got to get up and do something. I know. Zionism. And so they really got into it. I mean, they were like, they were like really moving, moving with that idea. And they were heading through all these different towns and, and observant towns who were like still praying to Mashiach, you know, to God for Mashiach. You know, let Mashiach come. They're like, you and your Mashiach, you're going to be slaughtered in the next year. You know, like get on the bandwagon with Zionism. You know, we're not waiting for Mashiach for like the next pogrom to hit. You know, forget that Mashiach business. Let's be, we're going to have a human Mashiach, like a human Mashiach era. And we're all industrialists. The Jews were like the top industrialists in country. That's just the nature of Jews. We always rise like the oil. This is really a Hanukkah class, by the way. We always rise. You put oil in water, what happens? The oil rises, and that's the Jewish people. We're the oil that rises. And so every nation we were in, we always rise to the top. So who's the top industrialist? We are. Who has the most noble prizes? The Jewish people do. Oh, you know we have like 10 times any nation? Because if you extract the Jews out of all the Russian Nobel Prizes and out of the U.S. Nobel Prize and all the other European Nobel Prizes and all the English Nobel Prizes, if you extract the Jews and make them their own nation, we have more Nobel Prizes than any nation by like 10 times. We've outstripped the world in Nobel Prizes. It's wild who we are. And that's the industrialists. Well, they can build countries quickly. Because what's God going to do? He's going to put a stick in the spokes of the wheel. Meaning we're going to be at the ultimate time of like forgetting about God. You know, like the Zionist wave. And, you know, the secular Zionist wave, obviously. Not, not talking about observant Zionists. Because every Torah Jew is a Zionist, obviously. But I'm talking about the secular Zionist. And he's going to put a, a stick, a wrench in the spokes, a stick in the spokes, stop the wheel just enough time for us to build our highways and an army and hospitals and everything we've got to build, full infrastructure of the state of Israel. And then the second he does so, he's going to pull the stick out and the wheel's going to turn and the Goyim or the Gentiles are going to attack and the Jews are going to fight and win over and over again, over and over again. And meanwhile, the observant Jews, the fiddler on the roof Jews, are going to kind of slide in, you know, slide under the radar into the land and have lots of kids and can make Torah very strong and fight the same war against those secular Zionists that's 200 years old. You know, all the people who like complain, they say, why can't Israelis get their acts together? You know, like, you're, just be together, live together, be friendly. They don't realize that the state of Israel is the new kid on the block for an old fight. This fight's been going on since the Enlightenment. It's a 200-year-old fight. The state of Israel came 
at the end of 150 years of a major cultural battle between secular and observant Jews. Then there was the state of Israel built by the secular ones. And the observant ones would never have come had it not been for the Holocaust. The Holocaust just kind of was like, okay, you know, like we've got to go somewhere. So a lot of them went to England, a lot of them went to the U.S., a lot of them went to Canada, to Belgium. And the rest came to here, but it wasn't necessarily the first choice. They came to the land, and they just started being fruitful and multiplying in little, little secret yeshiva Torah communities and, and have like really spawned like fish in the land while the secularists are like any other secularists. You know, you're lucky to get married. I, I don't even know married people in Tel Aviv. All my friends in Tel Aviv, I have a lot of friends in Tel Aviv. In fact, I was on the phone with them this morning, and I was supposed to be there actually around noon today, but I wound up not going. Everyone, I mean, they have partners. They have partners, but they're not like... And I'm not saying people don't get married in Tel Aviv. I've, I've, I don't have friends who are married, but I know they exist. You know, and they... But they build the state, which is called Yavan, the builders, or the, the, the Greeks. Yavan is the builders. And Sion is Tzadik, the Tzadik Yavan. Sion is the... The Jews, the, uh, the black hat community that is fruitful and multiplied themselves here in the land are the tzaddik. They're not, they, don't, they hate the Greek world. They hate the secular world. They're just the tzaddik. But when you put it all together, you get Sion. Tzaddik and Yavan is Sion. And they, you put it all together, and then you get a redemption of the land of Zion. God's original plan comes to fruition that the whole world will see this because who's watching this? This time the world's watching, big time. And so the stage is set. The Temple Mount's basically clear, all clear, you know, and God's ready to pull out those, you know, defibrillators on the heart of this plan. This great plan is about to be defibrillated. And and this whole world is going to come to completion. Amen. Happy Hanukkah. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.